Welcome back to the Human Exception. Sorry we missed the last couple weeks. Nathan and I were moving and, well, it was pure chaos, as you can imagine. But we're back now. This week, I will be telling the story of Clementine Barnabet, a 19-year-old black woman who in 1911 was arrested for the murder of a black family, only to five months later claim responsibility for the murders of three other families. Often, she is dubbed one of the most prolific female serial killers. But did she actually do it? Expect your usual dose of foul language, but we will also be talking about murder a lot, including the murder of infants and children. We'll spare you the gory details, but this can still be a difficult topic for some listeners. We will also be talking about race. This occurred during the Jim Crow era, and it's a very important aspect of this case, and why we can't take the media perspective strictly at its word. Let's get ready for another human exception. the same war cry it's pretty great oh wow yeah they've they've started to um get comfortable enough to fight with each other this week so they've been play wow. fighting and they all cuddle it's funny because mike's like i can't imagine hadfield fighting and then i'm like oh hold your horses bud Let me show oh you. yeah him and him and uh asher were were all about it it was great and then he just go and attack fucking freya for no reason he's just like sleeping in a corner <laughs> Freya's like, what the fuck? Who? Hadfield? Yes. She'd hiss at him and like he'd go and corner oh, him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um, Courtney, I've got a funny thing. That <gasps> oh, no. He's wrestling with Schrody now. Oh, oh no. my goodness. <laughs> Schrodinger, you'd be nice. You are too fat to be mean. <laughs> <laughs> Our cats are so big compared to him. I'm afraid that they're going to hurt him. And, and Shrody goes hard. Shrody goes hard. I'll come over and there'll be like chunks of Titian fur everywhere. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Shrody's too rough. <laughs> Titian's pretty gentle. <laughs> Shrody, not so much. I'm sorry. What were you sharing? <laughs> um, so in my Dragon Age Discord that I was in the other day, this topic came up. I can't remember how it fucking came up. Basically, someone has a fish phobia. <laughs> oh, like just fucking fish. <laughs> eels, fine. Crustaceans, fine. Jelly eels, horses, everything. Eels are a fish. Fine. You should be afraid of them. They're gross. <laughs> I love eels. Um, the issue that says it's big eyes and it's the scales. Oh, my two favorite parts. <laughs> I've never heard anyone with a fish phobia before. That was so. That was fun. Um. Oh, fun news flash. Remember when I talked about eels that one time and I was like, no one knows where eels come from. We found out where they come from. Oh. They all spawn in the same place. Um, North American and European eels. Um, I think it's somewhere in the Atlantic, if I remember correctly. And they're terminal spawners, which is why we never see them come back. Oh. Oh. Okay. Just, like, at some point, an eel just travels across the fucking planet. Basically, yeah. All 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 eels spawn in the same place. So they all go to the Sargasso Sea. 
and then um, fucking do their thing. Oh, no, that's from 2020. Where do we else come from? We, I just found this. Oh, it's, here it is in the BBC. That'll work. It's not my article, but... Funk. Okay. Bonk! They all traveled to the Sargasso Sea in the North Atlantic. Do it. Die. They finally... I like always thought this was weird. I'm like, why not just tag them and, and track them, right? We have the technology. It's not like we have huge GPS things anymore. Um, so they finally did that. And now we know. Uh, and Atlantic, all all eels, all like Atlantic eels come from the same place. All species and everything. Yeah. So fucking. That's all wild. of them are the same, apparently. They all just, you know, whatever. So a little anticlimactic. I kind of like the the eels come from the grass thing. Um, but you know. I kind of like the fact that there's like an eel convention every year or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, animal conventions are the best conventions. They just blow their load and die, and yeah, basically, yeah. it's interesting because actually, um, terrible art author in terms of human, but interesting author in terms of stuff. Uh, what's his name? The one that wrote Ender's Game. We don't need oh, to say his name. Or, he sucks. Yeah, yeah, he sucks. But uh, he has interesting, some interesting stuff that he did. He wrote um, some prequels to Ender or sequels to Ender's Game where Ender goes to outer space farther from outer space and does like xenobiology and stuff and they talk about like how these eels actually spawn with the grass because like all the animals can interchange their DNA and I thought that was really cool um so buy those second hand or borrow them from the library and read them because yeah. they're interesting but he's those, were, those were good books unfortunately yeah I love them Unfortunately, but speaker for the dead i think is the next one yep. after ender's game it is fascinating and then you remember he's mormon and then you see the mormon fingerprints all over it and you go oh oh <laughs> oh yeah there's a there's a whole lot of i mean that the whole like alien subculture kind of thing was very fascinating and like how settled humans sort of dealt with them and also tried to like keep their distance and let them have their own thing, but also tried to connect with them. It was it was all very weird and all very interesting. Well, that's what we do with anthropology, right? Now. Yeah. Now the standard is you observe but separate. And it's but it's very colonial very empire-y, very... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh. yeah. Anyway, these have been tangents with Courtney. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Alright. So I'm thinking we go in order of depressive. I can go first, Courtney go next, and Nathan can finish this off with some penises. Yep. Oh, mine's hilarious. Was... Mine's <laughs> amazing. I was, I was thinking because I have like probably a hard cutoff of like just after 12 i would go last anyway because it's probably going to be shorter and if we don't get to it we can maybe put it in with Hallie's thing during the week so yeah all right sounds like a plan penises I'm, i don't know what we're talking about with penises but i'm for it i'm ready <laughs> you'll find out <laughs> all right so my story 
a little bit of everything. You know, you got conspiracy, you got cults, you got murder, and of course there's a whole bunch of mystery. And it's also incredibly sensationalized, so even at the time that it occurred, so that makes it really hard to find, like, concrete details. Every source seems to cite different details, different dates, all that sort of stuff. But I've done my best to try and figure this out and give us a consistent narrative. So, on the morning of February 25th, 1911, in Vermilionville, Louisiana, the Andrews family of four were found in their home having been brutally murdered with an axe. Oh... Yeah. So this wasn't the first massacre in this way. From 1910 to 1912, there was an upsurge of murders committed by axe across America. Apparently it was a thing. Yeah. Some are still unsolved. Many have been attributed to the, quote, man from the train who was thought to have killed between 59 to 100 people from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. But in Louisiana, the murder of the Andrews family in February 1911 had a lot in common with two other cases. The month prior to the Andrews murder was the January 24th Byers family of three from Crowley, but even earlier, on November 13th, 1909, the Opelousa family of four in Rain, Louisiana. All were killed with the same level of violence and malice, woman, man, and child alike. The modus operandi reported between the three massacres was shockingly similar. All killed with an axe. In all cases, there doesn't appear to be any struggle, and it seems that the families were killed in their sleep. And there's another factor, which is probably the biggest reason that you have likely never heard of these murders, is that all of these families were black. Oh, I have a picture of the Andrews home from Lafayette. Tiny little shack. Mm-hmm. So race plays a big part in the story, and in many ways it's almost a miracle that these crimes were investigated or reported on at all, because this was the time of severe segregation. This was Jim Crow. So, you know, when you're a black person, you couldn't gather in groups larger than three without a police chaperone or risk getting arrested, and all public places were segregated, and it was illegal to cross those sometimes invisible, but also frequently physical lines lynchings were terrifyingly common, and while we know now that thousands occurred between 1900 and 1930, the data is very skewed as many law enforcement agencies, especially in the South, didn't treat lynchings, lynch, lynchings as what they were, homicides. We just, it's just a, like, <laughs> those aren't murder. <laughs> it's a good time. Yeah, why would they be? Murder happens to people, right? Oh God. Disenfranchisement was built into the law, and while the 13th Amendment of 1865 abolished the grand majority of slavery, it left a loophole wherein someone could be enslaved if they committed a crime, which, is, which was heavily abused and is still illegal in some states, which blows my fucking mind. I feel like that should be illegal somewhere. Like, there was something about that where people talk about, like, modern incarceration and underpaying people to do labor in prisons yeah. is illegal somehow but i don't know enough about it yeah like i know a couple states reformed like in the last decade and removed that law but there are still some that still yeah. have it and, like whether or not you know it's actively used is another thing right but we all know mm. the prison oh, it's actually bullshit as is so yeah it it's definitely uh it's definitely actively used. That's bullshit. Yeah. So systematic race, so systemic racism, racism is a huge topic and not one we obviously have time to get into today. 
but it's important to keep in mind that this is the time that we're talking about. As nearly all of our sources come from general media, which were mostly entirely white-owned or operated, and especially in the South, that also meant that the grand majority of law enforcement and the court system was also white. You can imagine where this is going. Oh, no, no, we're, we're good. good. Eight months after the Andrews murder. I can't, I can't imagine anything bad Not at all. Yeah. So eight months after the Andrews murder, on October 21st, 1911, a suspect was convicted and given the death penalty, a black man named Raymond Barnabet, who lived nearby. Raymond had been a suspect from the get-go, but law enforcement couldn't find any evidence that could tie him to the murders and were unable to keep him. It wouldn't be until September, after a fight with his family, would his own family turn on him. Clementine and Zephyr and Barnabet took the stand, telling the horrific story of how their father had come home in a rage between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. the morning of February 25th, where he forced the family out of their beds to help him dispose of the evidence that he had carried with him after the murder. Both children testified that their father had been covered in blood and gore. He then made his daughter wash his clothes and threatened both of them with death if they ever say it, said anything. After the conviction, Raymond's lawyer pushed an appeal, claiming that his client had been too inebriated to properly defend himself. The appeal stayed Raymond's execution, but unable to afford bond, Raymond remained in jail awaiting retrial. A month later in Lafayette, Louisiana, on the morning of November 27th, a nine-year-old girl of the Randall family returns home from a sleepover at her uncle's to find her father, mother, three siblings, and cousin butchered in the same manner as the Andrew family. They wore, as according to the Crowley Post newspaper, one of the best black families in the city. I'll tell you that that did not say black. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's not what was written in the newspaper. I'm going to correct those as they Ugh. come up because you don't need that. Oh, here is the Randall family home. This was puzzling as Raymond Barnabet, the man that had been convicted of the murder in the Andrews, was in jail, so it couldn't possibly, he couldn't have committed this crime. But what no one expected was within a couple hours, it'd be Raymond's 19 year old daughter, Clementine, that would be arrested. Interviewed as a possible witness, living close enough to the Randalls that at the very least she might have heard or seen something, but also she could be a suspect. Law enforcement questioned her and searched her room where they found a gore soaked apron, dress, and undergarments in her closet immediately triggering the arrest of the young woman. Zephyr and her brother would also be taken into questioning, police believing that Clementine couldn't have moved the bodies on her own. Enter Sheriff Louis, Louis Lacoste. I have a picture of this guy who has a mustache and hair. Yep. So Sheriff Louis Lacoste was convinced from early on of Clementine's guilt and immediately suspected her involvement in the Andrew murders, as Norbert Randall had been the brother of Mimi Andrew, telling papers that he believed he had sufficient evidence to charge the woman, but Clementine claimed innocence. Aside from the bloody clothes, officers would also find the latch on the gate of her home was soaked in blood, further adding to their conviction that she was the killer. Gregory Porter and Edwin Charles would also be arrested, having claimed to have been with Clementine the night of the murder. While Sheriff Lacoste took her clothes to New Orleans to have a lab inspect them, officers attempted to get her to talk to no avail, Clementine maintaining her innocence. While she couldn't give a satisfactory answer as to why her clothes were bloodied, others came forward to testify that Clementine had, quote, ran the streets that night so she couldn't have possibly killed the Randalls. On January 17th, 1912, the district attorney received the blood analysis from New Orleans. The report confirmed that the blood and brain material on Clementine's clothes was indeed human and not menstrual, 
was the same as the sample of the Randall family. Obviously, DNA analysis is not really a thing yet. What? Seven years before that, but at this point, uh, forensic chemists could tell if a blood sample was one human, and if it was, they could also identify blood types. So I have to assume when they say it's the same, that it's the same blood type. Yeah, which... Yeah. What? But yeah, you know, the blood's one thing, like, um, uh, when we look at our, there's eight different blood types, and, like, for the general population, there's two that are most common, like, 34 and 38% of the population have one of those two. But for um, people from the black communities, there's one blood type that dominates above all, which is about 50%. So if the blood had come from another black person, there's a 50% chance that it would have also matched the Randall blood. But you can't really explain the brain matter as as easily, though. So the next night... Yeah, it's a little harder. Oh, I got some brain matter on me by accident. It's not a regular (laughs) occupational hazard, I don't think. I mean, it depends on your occupation, I I guess. I'm a a homemaker, so. Okay, so maybe (laughs) not. Well, I mean, was it human brain matter? Was that specified? It does say that it it was human. Um, It it, it does classify the blood and the brain material were human, so. Again, this is a newspaper reporting on it, so who knows? how accurate those details are but that just places her at the scene that doesn't mean that she did it yeah the next night mary warner and her three children were found murdered in crowley louisiana by of course an axe with both clementine and raymond in jail the police turned to the last barnabat zephyrin and arrested him despite him having an alibi believing he'd done it on behalf of his sister and or his dad and two nights later, on January 20th, 50 miles away in Lake Charles, Louisiana, the family of Felix Broussard, consisting of his wife and three children, were killed, again, with an axe. This one had a couple interesting details, though. In the bedroom where the father's body was found, there was a bucket beside the bed that was half-filled with blood. It's entirely possible the bucket had been there prior to the murders and simply became filled with blood because of the circumstances, but law enforcement and journalists alike seemed to believe that this was a sign that the killings had been part of some ritual. What? <laughs> this theory is backed up by another piece of evidence because written on the door in pencil was the quote, When he maketh inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. This is a misquote of a verse from the ninth psalm. It'd be easy to dismiss this error as just that, except that this exact misquote was seen in the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, which, you know, in the book, this was a phrase that was used as a warning against those who committed the sin of slavery. That they would face divine punishment if they did so. So, which is kind of even weirder that it's on the murder scene of a black family. Yeah, you'd think it'd be on the murder scene of a white family. Exactly. So, it said the quote, after the quote, there was the words human five, though it's not consistently reported. It's also sometimes reported that this is all written in blood, but I more frequently see that it was written in pencil. So, with blood some. That sounds more papers. Sorry. Blood sells more papers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with so many murders of black families occurring in the area, the entire black community was on edge. It was reported that many families kept their lanterns burning all night, the adults staying awake to watch over their families in case the mysterious killer were to make an appearance. It was reported in one scenario that a black woman heard something outside her door and she shot through the door with a gun. General interest in murders was on the rise, where the first couple murders were barely reported on. By this point, every murder was reported on by all local papers and even papers in other states. Said even begun to baffle the white population who could not figure out any reasoning for the acts of violence. To quote the Crowley Post, quote, 
In at least a majority of the cases, the, the victims were respectable and inoffensive black people. Inoffensive. <laughs> wow. Uh, it had gotten to the point that, the go that Governor Sanders of Crowley yeah. had put up a $500 reward for any tips that led to the capture and conviction of whoever was responsible for the murder of Mary Warner and her family. This is the equivalent of about $15,000 a day, so that's not chump change, and so it's pretty impressive that big of a reward. The rising interest and concern led to many interesting developments. As people became more aware of what was happening in Louisiana, neighboring states began to wonder if their crimes were somehow related. On February 18th, the Dove family, which was consisted of a mother and her three children in Beaumont, Texas, were killed in a similar manner. And then, as with any major crime spree, suspects would make themselves known in, in the most unusual way. On February 1st, 1912, a black preacher named Abraham Nelson is arrested in Lake Charles after several reports over the last three to four days of him entering the homes in black communities around midnight. If caught, he would ask the family for a coffee or tea and begin quoting scripture. What the fuck? <laughs> Um, so thought, thought to be a member okay. of the Jennings Sanctified Church, it's unclear what he was doing, especially in such a tense climate. But it's noted that three years prior, he had been in prison for a, quote, serious crime. We don't know what that is. Um, and, you know, since they'd use any excuse to imprison people at the time, it may not have been anything. <laughs> it could be that he was mentally disturbed, which is why he was wandering into people's houses at midnight to give, quote, scripture and ask for tea. I don't know. Um, I would like to also note, though, that Lake Charles is where the Broussard murders happened, which had the scripture quote on the door. Could mean nothing. Could be related. No one knows. Bizarre. Fucking weird. So d despite all these strides and leads, little would be reported on the case again until April 1st, 1912, when things make a big shift. After two days of questioning, Clementine gave a full confession to Deputies Peck, Sal Broussard, and Sheriff Fontenot. She claimed to be responsible for the murders of the Randalls, Briars, Andrews, and even the Broussard family, despite being in prison when it happened, totaling 17 victims. Yep. It sounds like a coerced confession. All right. from the paper of her. She uh, it said that the statement lacked any remorse for the awful murders as she described the events in graphic detail. She also told them that others would carry out her work all along the Southern Pacific Railroad from, Railroad from New Orleans to San Francisco. Clementine allegedly claimed that she led a sect called the Church of Sacrifice, an offshoot of a local holiness church, but one she fortified with the purchase of hoodoo charms. She claimed that there were four others dedicated to her cause, two men and two women, but refused to name them. It's claimed that the church's goals was immortality and that the murders were sacrifices towards that goal. Now, let's claim, this is what the re news reports say. We've got nothing of her saying that that's what it was for. Wow. Um, and naturally, it's after this, the journalism takes a huge shift in how it represents Clementine and the murders. Well, previously, the murders were described with an emphasis on the violence, but they were all pretty standard fare. This confession, combined with the strange factors of the Broussard murder, made the killings get completely reframed as depraved religious sacrifice. Is it not murder if it's religious <laughs> sacrifice, or is that what we're going? I mean, kind of, actually. <laughs> Don't look into that. 
<laughs> so it seemed that once she made her initial oh. confession, Clementine would oh. happily regale her tale to whoever came asking. And through this, we have a copy of one of these testimonies as given to the New Orleans item. The whole thing is a couple pages long, so I'm not going to read all of it. But the full version will be on the website, of course. So, my name is Clementine Barnabet. I was born and partly raised near the town of St. Martinville, Louisiana, and moved to Lafayette about three years ago when I began to lead a life of degradation. I have never been married. It was while in the company of two other women and two men while in New Liberia that we met an old black man who told us that he could sell us some conjas, meaning hoodoos, with which we could do as we pleased and we would never be detected and would be protected from the hands of the law by the mere fact of these conjas being in our possession. We bought and paid for them $3 each, which is about $93 today. So, you know, a black family at a time, like ha giving that kind of money for something is would be quite a lot. So we paid them for $3 each, and then we left New Iberia the same night, returning to Lafayette. When we began to plan our actions, we had not yet decided on committing any murders, but it was while we were discussing our future plans, the question came up as to whether we could kill and be protected by the hoodoos. One of the gang was instructed to go to New Iberia and interview the hoodoo man, who said that we were safe in any and all actions which we might do. Our lives would at all times be fully protected by the power of the hoodoos. It was sometime during the year 1910, I believe in the fall, that I went to rain with my companions and we drew lots to know who would take the first attempt of the hoodoos in committing murders. The lot fell to me and accordingly I got to work that night. I went to my sister who lived in rain near the OG Railroad Depot. During that night we went uptown disguised as a man and securing an axe in a yard near the cabin where I, I killed the mother and four children. I saw the light was burning, and by that, I could easily see inside. I saw the mother sleeping in her bed, then I decided that I would enter the house, and there began the work which we had planned. So, violence warning. Um, on entering the house, I struck the woman on the right temple and killed her instantly. One of the children was awakened by the noise, and before he could raise his head from the pillow, I struck him a blow somewhere near the left ear. I struck the other two. I left the man's clothes, which I wore to the house, and left the house in women's clothes returned to my sister's house, and later during the same night, I boarded a night train for Lafayette, arriving here around midnight. It was about 9, nine p.m. when I killed the people. When I returned to Lafayette, I reported the matter to the other members of the gang, and we watched the development in the case with great interest. When we saw that we had not been detected, we decided the hoodoos had done their part and we were safe. In Crowley, I entered the house with one of the women while the others kept watch, and as I'd had the axe in my hand, I committed the murders. Once this was done, it was an easy matter to get rid of the two small children. We thought it better to kill them than to leave them orphans as they would suffer. We never spoke of committing any more murders until sometime in February. The night before an election, we knew that all the officers would be busy politicking. We went to the refinery and there we laid our plans, not knowing who the victim or victims would be. I was near the house the next morning when Timmy's brother came to the house and called them, and not getting any answer, he looked through the window and saw that they were dead. He began crying, and I was the one that went to him first and asked him what happened. He told me, and I went to notify their parents who lived nearby. I helped to wash them and prepare them for burial. It was on Sunday night that we went out for a frolic, and we went to a meeting of the God Sacrifice Church. After we left the church, we secured an axe and took with us a bundle of old clothes, which we carried with us. I went a little way up the street and saw someone coming. I laid the axe behind a tree when we saw who it was. It was King Harrison, the minister of the God Sacrifice Church. 
told him that there had been two men fighting on the street, as the officers would see him run around and arrest him. Yet as we were told, and he went around. This left us all alone in the street, so we crawled to the house, entered from behind, and killed them. After this, we went uptown to talk the matter over. I returned home at about 2 o'clock in the morning and went to bed, when I, where I stayed until I was awakened by a man I worked for the next morning about 5. I worked around the house until I was arrested by Mr. Peck at about 10 in the morning. So, yeah, that is the bulk of the confession. There's a lot more details. She very graphically describes how she procedurally goes through and kills every person. So bizarre. Yeah, it doesn't... Mm. The way she's just casually talking about things, it just... It doesn't seem right. Something's not right. <laughs> no. I mean, it's not like killers haven't done that. Um, however, uh, given the time... And the context, I call <laughs> bullshit. As you can imagine, with this confession, um, interest across the country dramatically increased. I have this picture that was from a magazine or newspaper, uh, which depicts a black woman with an axe sacrificing people. Yeah. Mm. And this is a picture from uh, El Paso newspaper. But immediately jumped on the whole voodoo hoodoo thing. Voodoo horrors break out again. Wow. How the cruel and gruesome murders of Africa's wicked serpent worship have been revived oh in Louisiana by a fanatic sect of sacrifice. Jesus. For those listening at home, there's a baby wrapped in a snake. Look, that snake is just being the best caregiver ever. Better than some people. <laughs> It's swaddling the baby. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. That's totally true. So law enforcement felt like this was their big break and thought Clementine's confession through that, that they could arrest at least 50 other potential accomplices. Accomplices. <laughs> and while Clementine was now saying that her father was innocent and that the idea to throw him under the bus came from her stepmother and brother, Raymond wasn't as courteous. Unsurprisingly, Clementine's father would turn on her, telling the papers and law enforcement that he believed that she was guilty. He claimed to remember the morning after the Andrew family murder that he found her sitting on the porch, having not been in bed all night, and she wouldn't tell him where she had been. He claims that he found some of her bloody clothes. It's noted that she did not like her father. Yeah, he seems very trustworthy. <laughs> right? <laughs> seems totally trustworthy. Like whole family to throw you under the bus i mean i could see it as like a, a case of self-preservation i guess given the time and everything but like also yeah. no the public reactions seem to vary though it's hard to get a clear view on view on what these opinions were based on most papers as they all seem to report a similar atmosphere. The one publisher mentioned that people weren't sure if they believed Clementine, having a hard time wrapping their head around the fact that one woman could do so many horrible crimes, at least not by herself. While many seem to take this as a nice, clean end to a horrific series of murders, there was good reason to doubt. The Daily Pecune reported that all the information she'd given officers that impl implicated others were proven to be complete fabrications. Sheriff Lacoste was not buying Clementine's story. The religious fat fanaticism, the hoodoo charms and claims of, of an organized movement all sounded like fantasy to him. This supported by the inconsistencies in her statements and all the drama, she was reported to put her hand to her head and say, Oh, I want to tell you something, but I can't. Seemingly suffering great mental anguish. There was a few reports that he subjected Clementine to many tests that led him to his conclusions, but 
he wasn't ready to reveal what those results were and was playing his cards close to his chest and we don't know what kind of tests he was subjecting her to either. He does suggest, though, that her motive was jealousy. But Clementine stoutly protests this as she had no hatred or jealousy against the victims and had no thoughts of robbery. She did, however, say that she had a strong passion to fondle or embrace people at certain periods of the month and that when she killed the families in question, she indulged in this to her heart's content. A word choice? Now, again, this is papers reporting that this is what she said. <laughs> that's, uh, that's an interesting... Um... Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Choice of words. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> because of the complexity of the case and the continuing discovery of new leads, the case would be put off going to trial until law enforcement could thoroughly investigate all of her claims. The contradictory statements of Clementine made it hard to rely on her confession, as law enforcement had not been able to confirm these statements independently. And while the cost was coming up empty-handed, he did claim to have sure evidence that would prove that Clementine, at the very least, killed the Randalls. Louisiana law enforcement and the district attorney Bruner did not believe the Texas murders were related. A deputy was sent to investigate and found these murders appear to be robbery motivated. Though there were varying opinions about exactly which of the Louisiana murders Clementine was actually involved in. On April 4th, the grand jury was assembled to review the charges and it was decided of the 39 alleged murders that she admitted to by this point um, that, that was, she allegedly did, she would only be indicted for the six murders of the Randall family. Judge determined that the court would not accept a guilty plea, despite Clementine's fervent and repeated confessions to whoever would listen. Which is strange that they'd not accept a guilty plea. Yeah, I... It sounds like a lot of mental illness mixed with racism. Moda was still a big missing piece against the case against Clementine, causing people to believe that she was a true psychopath. Clementine allegedly had a history of trouble with law enforcement and claimed to have been repeated, officers claimed to have repeatedly driven her from town. Yet in other places, I saw that she was considered, quote, one of the good ones who was frail and mild mannered. Quote from her paper says that Clementine has been rarely looked on as a white folks no. black person. And in the past, apparently, has had little to do with her race. She has always been had a deep interest in the work of the Sacrifice Church, however. A white folks, black person. <sighs> the fuck? That's so gross. So after this point, while similar murders continue to happen in Texas and Mississippi, the murders in Louisiana cease. What follows is a desperate bid to find any solid evidence against Clementine to attach her to the murders. With Clementine's claims of being involved in a church of sacrifice and purchasing hoodoo charms, police naturally wanted to speak to those involved and spoke to many. Among them was uh, Joseph Thibodeau. He was an alleged voodoo doctor that sold Clementine her hoodoo charms who in and who inspired her to commit the murders. He was arrested on April 4th. When asked about his trade, Thibodeau claimed to be a farmer and a fortune teller. He treated people with roots and vines and tells fortunes by reading palms with cards. And when confronted with Clementine, he declared that he'd never met her before. Thibodeau was well-known in the community and was well-liked and thought to be a kind and peaceful man. The community found it hard to believe that he could be involved in anything like this. On June 10th, preacher J.S. Anderson is arrested, found to sell, quote, paradise pills at $10 a pop, which is about $312 today. He had 
He had an itinerary that brought him through the towns and cities in both Louisiana and Texas and was thought to be connected to the murders. Turns out J.S. Anderson was actually S.W. Goodman, a former Baptist preacher of San Antonio, who had escaped Huntsville Penitentiary after several months of a four-year sentence and was known to be in the general area when the murders occurred, but nothing comes from this arrest. So what, what causes a four-year sentence? That's an odd number yeah. to me. Then again, Jim Crow. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. One time claimed to have four accomplices, two men and two women, Mary and Irene, and was what the women were called. And she seemed to not be worried in the slightest about their capture, claiming that they were still under hoodoo protection. So the police would never catch them. Many young people bought, were brought in for questioning and under the suspicion that they may be one of these mysterious accomplices, but none ever panned out, despite the sheriff claiming at one point that he thought he had all five members in his prison. While law enforcement dismissed any claims that the Texas murders were related, they did continue to happen. On August 20th in San Antonio, Texas, the Dashell family was asleep in theirs when an assailant entered through an open window and attempted to slay the family with an axe. They targeted the mother first, who managed to defend herself, giving her husband enough time to wake up and grab a firearm and shoot at the attacker. While the shot missed, the would-be killer fled. This family was twice lucky, as three months previous, an unknown attacker had attempted to kill them, but also was deterred. And while the family survived, what elements could be established from the attack did seem to be in theme with the other attacks that had occurred in the area over the last couple years. But yeah, it happens to you twice. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. October 7th, Clementine goes to her first day of trial, and the charges in this case being the murder of the Randall family of six. Her lo lawyer then makes a plea for religious insanity. Clementine, Clementine allegedly said, quote, I do not care what they do with me. They can hang me if they wish. October I mean, they probably will, ma'am. <laughs> On October 21st, Clementine was assessed by a Dr. E.M. Hummel of New Orleans, a Dr. John Tolson, and a Dr. R.D. Voorhees. They're assessment of the situation is as follows I've found the subject to be a morally depraved, unusually ignorant, and of a low-grade mentality but not deficient in such a manner as to constitute her imbecilic or idiotic we found in, in the case no sign of acquired insanity it is therefore our joint opinion that, that said Clementine Barnabet is sane in a legal sense of the word Despite claiming not guilty, and, dis but, and despite the objection of her lawyer, she insisted the jury be given her written confession. Um, there's a quote from her here that says, I am the axe woman of the sacrifice sect. I killed them all, men, women, and babies, and I hugged the dead babies to my breast, but I am not guilty of murder. Is that what you were saying, Nathan? I did it, but I didn't do it? Yep. <laughs> Okay. So she confessed to 17 murders, and testimony introduced in trial suggested that she had killed 22 instead, and that the sect as a whole had killed 300 in the last 10 years. The testimony wasn't all in before the state rested, believing they had heard enough. And despite her own lawyer arguing that her statements were unreliable, she was sentenced to life in prison on October 24th to serve her sentence in the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Baton Rouge. I said that if she was not found guilty, the black people of the community would have taken the law into their own hands and lynched her. But it's unclear if there's any truth to this at all. What was reported in the papers, and you know, since that's how the white people handed their version of social justice, then maybe that's what they assume the black people would do. I don't know. And we don't have a voice in the black community to know how they actually felt about her, if they actually thought she was guilty or not. Mm-hmm. 
She was convicted guilty of killing Mrs. Randall. The rest of the cases against her were dropped. It is said that she was indifferent to the results of the trial and had expected a much more severe punishment. So, like, in court, they presented evidence that she may have killed 22 people, but ultimately she was only convicted of killing one person. So, please hope this Clementine locked away that these sacrifice sex killings would cease. But then on November 22nd in Philadelphia, Mississippi, William Walmsley, the, her, his wife and child were found dead, murdered by an axe. Police not only believe that this is the work of the sacrifice sect, but also that the Walmsley family were ex-members themselves. It's thought that Clementine knew of these murders. Clementine went to prison and it said that she, when she arrived, she was kept in close confinement and that the other inmates, particularly people of color, were so afraid of her that the guards were scared to give her any liberty at all. She only made one escaped attempt on July 31st, 1913, but was caught the same day. On August 2nd, it was reported that Clementine had gone under surgery at the hands of Dr. Sterling, the physician at her penitentiary, assisted by Dr. Wyatt and H. Ingram. Dr. Sterling believed that Clementine's desire to kill came from a perversion of the sexual instinct and petitioned the warden for permission to complete an operation that he believed would, quote, fix her. Oh, we God. don't know exactly what this operation is, but it's said that she became one of the mild, mildest prisoners incarcerated. As a quote from Dr. Sterling, they've had the woman under observation ever since. She has lost all traces of her old desire to kill and sings cheerfully as she works in the fields with the other black folk. Cure is complete as oh, it is God. wonderful. Lobotomies wouldn't come into vogue until like the 1930s, though early experiments with similar procedures weren't known to occur in one-off scenarios. There was a report from a Russian surgeon the year before, in 1912, who experimented with this and said that while it seemed effective, the risk was way too high and he did not recommend the surgery. So it's very likely the surgery performed with Clementine was an early form of psychosurgery, but we'll probably never know for certain. We also will likely never know if Clementine was actually mentally ill. We all know about hysteria. Yeah. Well, and trepanning mm -hmm. has been a thing for centuries. It's trepanning? And if you do, uh, it's where you drill holes in your head. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, and it, it was supposed to help with, like, communing with the spirits or something, I think, in some cultures. And I think some people probably did it for, uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, it's something like that is what they did. Yeah, there's nothing else that I can think of that would cause such a different change in personality. <laughs> so it has to. Well, be and there's the also there was also like the cases of people who had like railroad spikes go through their head and they survived. So I'm sure that they were just like, oh, yeah, you know, just experiment on this person. Why not? Well, yeah, they believe at the time that like you have a metal spike up there, it'll be fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. People at the time also kind of believed that mental illness was like a tumor, that it was just like, if you cut that piece out of the brain, you're fine. <laughs> when, yeah. yeah, that's not how it works at all. Um, a little is known about what happened to Clementine's family or her accomplices that were thought to have helped her. And once Clementine was released on April 28th, 1923, that was it. We never hear anything else about her again. So 10, 10 years after she's in prison, she is released. Ever serving up her life. Okay. So up until April 1912, Clementine had insisted upon her innocence. It was only then she performed a full 180, going for broke and claiming responsibility for all the murders, not just the ones that she'd been arrested for, and even some that occurred while she was behind bars. 
the time she went to trial, she was insistent that she indeed was the killer and appeared to show no remorse for her actions and seemed almost gleefully happy to recount them, at least if we listen to the papers. So what changed? We know very little about who Clementine was before this. Had she been mentally unstable? Had she been healthy and law enforcement and confinement wore her down? Did she really commit all those murders or just one or none? Was the Church of Sacrifice even real? News reports were inconsistent. Some bought into the tale wholeheartedly, and while others were more reserved, some claimed certain events happened with certain people, while others claimed the opposite. The information I present here is based on the most common narrative and a series of reports written by court journalists I was able to find. And while across the board details were inconsistent, one factor seemed to come up frequently was that Clementine's own story was inconsistent. So it could be the different details reported by different papers at different times were the result of Clementine's ever-changing story. Or it could be a paper just trying to distinguish themselves and get more clicks, right? Clicks. Clicks. <laughs> Wait, clicks, is that like the 30 cents that go into the change dispenser? Yeah, five cents. Okay. The paper, five cents? Yeah, five cents is probably more accurate. <laughs> um, so there's a quote from the paper. The black girl is so irrational and her talk is so disconnected. She has told so many different stories that the officers give little weight to her confession. She has given the names of those who were connected with her and the commissions of the crimes, but the officers have not yet been able to find such persons and have come to the conclusion that the names are fictitious. She says two other women and two men are implicated with her in the Lafayette, Crowley, and Rain crimes. Okay, here's my thing from, like, a police perspective. If your witness or convicted person or whatever isn't reliable and the only real evidence you have against them is their own confession. Yeah, that should not be. Maybe that's not your person. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, there's uh, not enough to really figure out. Right, but they're just worried about closing <laughs> cases. Yep. I almost wonder if like she got they she decided she got quote unquote caught, right? And then she just decided like they're gonna pin this on me regardless. Why not just take the bullet and then maybe save some other people from being wrongly accused and I'll just confess to everything. Yeah, that's kind of one thought that I've had about it. Because, like, yeah. Yeah. So, um, speaking of the confession then, so uh, a little more of the evidence here that I'm going to present here. So we're going to go through the, the possibilities of what went on here. So, yeah, April 1st, Clementine confesses. It's noted in several newspapers that she finally confessed after two days of questioning by Sheriff Fontenot. Clementine had been in jail since the end of November, so we have to assume that she'd been questioned several times between her arrest and her confession, so specifying two days seems significant. There have been several cases where people were held for questioning, especially young people of color, and end up, uh, end up admitting to a crime as they see that as the only way to get out of the room. There, these are, of course, like we were saying, coerced confessions, and they are not admissible in court and are very illegal. Um, you can find and grill anyone long enough, they'll own up to about anything. And by the point of her confession, Clementine had been held for five months with little evidence. She could have very well thought that she was never getting out. So like Courtney said, like, maybe it's like, well, fuck, I'm stuck. They're, they're going to pin this on me regardless. Might as well take the fall. Now, the mildest methods for doing this, of course, is relentless questioning. But historically, we have heard all manner of things from lying to suspects, screaming, sleep deprivation, de denial of food and water, threatening or enacting violence, and much worse. And while black people had their freedom, many in the South particularly still considered them lesser people. So they may be willing to do less humane things. If you don't think a person deserves to even share a train car with you or that if you or that if a woman 
has even the smallest drop of black blood, she legally has to cover her hair as to not tempt the white men or possibly be mistaken as white, what are you going to do to a young black woman you suspect of killing dozens of people? So we have to look at the law enforcement and consider the character. There were two primary sheriffs that worked this case, Sheriff Lacoste and Deputy Sheriff Fontenot. And as few records exist from that era, at least not online, my best bet was to learn about these men was to check the newspapers. Naturally, the papers are biased and curated, so we can only take so much from them. Lacoste appears to be a fair man. Looking at the reports of arrests that he performed, they seem to be 60-40 white to black. And at this point, the populations were about equal in that area. I saw several instances where he pursued, arrested, and convicted white men for crimes against black men, women, and children. From the statements that he made in relation to Clementine's case, he wasn't satisfied with just what was being put in front of him. An elaborate confession like the one that Clementine allegedly made would make for a quick way to close several cases and satisfy the public. But he and his team appeared to value police work, and despite having an easy win presented to them, they pursued every lead and had attempted to hunt down any and all evidence. For Fontenot, we know a lot less about him and his, what he was doing in the case, but it was him who had questioned Clementine for two days. But a week after her confession, he was quoted saying that he didn't think Clementine had anything to do with any of the murders in Rain and Crowley, though didn't say why he believed that. So both sheriffs and other law enforcement were quoted as saying, as saying that they didn't believe, or at least didn't fully believe, Clementine's story. To me, this is promising that they were willing to be rational and consider all the facts, despite an easy win practically being forced on them. This doesn't clear them of all suspicion in their treatment of Clementine in this case, but gives me a little bit of hope. Regardless, we still have to consider Clementine's full 180 and the most feverish insistence on these multiple versions of events. It was reported as well that she seemed sane, at least prior to her confession, after which the journalistic integrity gets pretty shaky. It was reported that when, when the confession was first given, law enforcement attempted to find evidence supported Clementine's claims, but most were proven to be untrue. Yet it said that the other parts were true, but it doesn't specify yet if evidence was found to back it up or if they were just not outright disproven. So, from a newspaper report that was prior to the confession, it says, Sheriff Fontenot of Acadia spent a part of Monday in an equally fruitless attempt to worm from the black woman something tangible regarding the mysterious crimes at Crowley and at Rain. He questioned both Clementine and her sister Pauline, but both with equal non-success. District Attorney Bruner and Sheriff Lacoste have been likewise unsuccessful in securing further admission that might throw more light on the atrocious crimes, for at least six of which they are certain the Barnabas woman is responsible. Another quote is, the Barnabas girl is 19 years of age, but strong and robust. In appearance, there is nothing to indicate that she is demented, but the numerous contradictions in her story and the amazing nature of it has caused some of the officers to doubt its truthfulness. So yeah, it's like, up until her actual conviction, quotes and stuff from police were very like, oh, we're not sure, yet we managed to convict her. So then that's weird. Yeah, brings us to the hardest piece of evidence, which is the bloody clothes. So, testing in New Orleans confirmed that the clothing had blood and brain matter on it, consistent with samples taken from a pillowcase from the crime scene. It's confirmed that the blood is not menstrual. First glance, this, this is pretty damning, but during her trial, her attorney argued that police had thrown her clothes in in a bag of evidence that was collected from the crime scene, and the random blood likely was transferred to them that way. So, Clothes were found and collected on the day of her arrest, and it was later that the blood was found on the latch of the back gate. As far as I'm aware, that blood on that gate was never tested. But if her clothes had indeed been stored in the same bag as the evidence collected at the Randalls, transfer would be very easy. 
but there had to be a reason the clothing was collected in the first place. I found it really interesting that it specifically mentioned the blood was found on the dress, apron, and undergarments. So Clementine was 18. Possible that menstruation was still new to her. It's typical today for women to begin between 12 to 15 years of age. This wasn't always the case, and there are many factors for that. Our bodies respond to our environments and circumstances, things like poverty, malnutrition, substance use, pollution, violence, psychological well-being, illness, and stress can all cause big delays or irregularities in our development. In the 18th century, London was going through a rapid expansion and became incredibly overcrowded. Analysis of the remains of women that died young, it was found that 26% had not completed puberty before they died at 25 years of age. Which is wild to me. But it just goes to show that when you don't have all the things that you need to be a healthy human, that it really puts that process off. So Clementine, living in a segregated black community that at the time was especially run down, underfunded, and undercared for by the state, everything about Jim Crow era made it very difficult for a black person to just live, to acquire the funds and food, and to get a hold, get and hold a paying job. Every aspect of living was purposely set out to be more difficult for a person of color. And some persons bleed incredibly heavily to the point of causing them to be anemic, a condition brought on by blood loss. And God knows that in 1911, you didn't have Tampax. So menstruation was dealt with in all sorts of do-it-yourself methods, from specific garments to homemade cloth pads to rubber underwear, which sounds terrible, mm -hmm. and sometimes even bandages. Um, as you can imagine, access to the fancier gadgets wouldn't be high on the priority list for some black families, and it's safe to assume that most products used were made from spare fabric or old clothes. Menstruating also requires planning. You have to know how long your product is going to last based on your current flow and readily have some on hand to replace it. Every menstruating person has found themselves somewhere without a pad or tampon when they've needed one. Mm -hmm. And every menstruating person has bloodied at least one pair of pants or skirts. It's gross, but this is the reality of if you've ever <laughs> menstruated. It's going to happen. Yep. I'll also say it's possible that when the clothes were taken, there was blood on them. Just not Randall blood. But it would have required it if it was tossed in the same bag as the blood other bloodied items. Historically, men have ran the other way at even the mention of menstruation and knew very little bit about how it works. I met a guy once that thought that tampons were like parachutes and that's what the string was. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. This guy was an ex-Marine. What? Like, he had basic like, first aid knowledge. He thought it was like a parachute? Like you pull it and it deploys? Yeah, you pull the string and it just opens up. <laughs> I have no words. Right. And we've come a long way since 1911, so guys like that, if guys are still thinking things like that today, like, God knows what the policemen back there thought when they saw it. Like, they found the bloody clothes, they may not have thought menstruation right away, and that's the less nefarious possibility, because if they had thought it anyways, and purposely tossed it into the evidence bag, not good. Now, as Lacoste, Lacoste had the clothes tested, we have to assume that he intended to determine the truth, but if transfer is the reason for the random blood and brain matter being present, the question becomes whether or not that was intentional. Forensics was still very new. It's possible that they didn't consider transfer or consider it a risk if they assumed the blood already present was from the murder. But that's all assuming that the transfer theory is correct. It's possible that that didn't happen at all and the clothes were found that way. So yeah, like, I only found the one thing that mentioned the, um the lawyer arguing that the clothes had been tossed into the evidence bag with the, with the Randall stuff. But that, if that's the case, that's, that makes that evidence really suspicious.
Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not great. So the church. Was the church a sacrifice even a real thing? Information about this is really inconsistent, and throughout the investigation, a half dozen preachers were arrested as thought with ties to the church of sacrifice or voodoo. Um, from a newspaper article, Clementine's story that the religions the religious fanatics took possession of a cottage owned by a person marked for slaughter and that a bloody orgy followed. A bloody orgy. Uh, yeah, that was part of the uh Oh, of course. Really? That's what the bucket of How blood could I was not for, know? Obviously. Hmm. Another one says, the teaching of the Church of Sacrifice are said to be based on the crazy belief that all black families of five or more members must be sacrificed for the good of the African race. Sermons that are said is in many instances have been nothing short of appeals to passion. Frenzied shouting was usually indulged in and it was not unusual for half dozen persons to be overcome with a wild zeal during a service. Meetings, especially those held at night, lasted many hours and often until dawn. Obviously, there's this church and all these black people are going to it and they're getting so excited that they're going out and murdering people. Mm. And something about black families not having more than five people, which doesn't line up with since not all the murders happened to families of five or more. <laughs> Most were less than five. You know, but we're a paper, we're going to make shit up. So according to the book, The Dark Bayou and Famous Louisiana Homicides, Reverend Harris told the police that he indeed did lead an unofficial sect of the Christ-sanctified Holy Church, known as the Church of Sacrifice, but said he did not believe their teachings advocated for murder and nothing in it excused it. Harris would say that he had set up sacrifice sects in a small number of towns, including Lafayette and Crowley, along the Southern Pacific Railroad, but the headquarters were located in Lake Charles, all locations where the murders had occurred, but again, are also all along the railroad. It seems that this sect was a real thing independent of Clementine, and she was likely a member of the sect, but we have to assume that the official teachings of the sect had nothing to do with blood sacrifices. No one but the media claimed that that was the case. Not even Clementine. Of course, you wouldn't expect anyone to own up to such a thing if your church was spouting such ideas, but you'd think that word would have got out if you're compelling people to murder people like... It's also noticed that, uh, noted that Clementine herself said that Joseph Thibodeau, the hoodoo man, is the one that had inspired her to commit the murders. And he was not a part of the church. Which, of course, then brings hmm. us to voodoo. So, the term voodoo inspires images of animal sacrifice, dolls, and zombies, but that can be further from the truth. There's a quote from a paper back at the time describing what voodoo is. It is down in the Caribbean islands, though, that this hideous cult of witchcraft is supreme. You can hardly conceive the grip that voodooism has had on Jamaica, Haiti, and Santo Domingo, and even Cuba. The state of affairs in Haiti beggars description. Not only is human sacrifice often, with subsequent cannibalism, actually prevalent today, but foreigners in Port-au-Prince, the capital, openly avar the high governing government officials secretly join in the practices. It is certain that so strong of pull that have voodoo with the police and government that they are immune from disturbances. There is enough actual evidence in the records of, of consulates and the criminal court relic of a courageous president of the last generation to make one of the most horrible, horrible books conceivable. So, this is what I thought voodoo was. <laughs> the Caribbean no. islands was rife with it and everyone was committing human sacrifices and cannibalism, including the government and law enforcement. I mean, it is prevalent in the Caribbean, but it's like a mixture of African, Catholic, and indigenous religions. Yes. 
Oh, originally known as Vodou, um, in the south anyways, Vodou has more in common with Christianity than does most pagan religions. They have one god, known as Bondi, and beneath that are a variety of spirits with each with unique names, personalities, and areas of focus. And of course, then there's your ancestors, which are a vital part of Vodou practice and prayer. So real Vodou is not what we call black magic, it is a religion. Vodou does vary a lot by family and region. Its roots are African, and it's thought, and it's through the slave trade that it found its way to America and the Caribbean. Catholic slave owners forcefully converted their slaves, and the Vodou practicing people were forced to either assimilate or adapt. Vodou was changed to be able to hide in plain sight. Images of saints were used to represent the traditional Vodou spirits, and this is why Christian iconography is so closely linked to the Vodou religion. Despite how far we've come since 1865, Many American Vodou practicers feel the need to hide their worship in popular cultures, so rife with horrific stereotypes about their religion. So in the early 1900s, the mandatory secrecy of Vodou meant that white folk only heard whispers and were left to draw their own conclusions, filling in the blanks with wild and outrageous ideas and becoming the perfect scapegoat whenever you want, whenever someone wanted to doubt, cast doubt or suspicion on a black person. And then we have Hoodoo, on the other hand, um, which is not a religion, but a practice that roots itself in fortune-telling, magic, herbal remedies. The name is thought to originate from the word hoodoo, meaning spirit work, and many of the practices are thought to originate from Central Africa. So if Clementine had sought, client, sought up charms to protect herself and her friends, hoodoo charms purchased from a conjurer would be her best bet. But again, this, is, this practice is a lot more similar with Wicca, but you know, less of the religious aspects. It's more spiritual. It's not, that's not blood sacrifice. That's not what's happening. Mm -mm. I always think it's weird that, like, Christianity goes, like, anything that's slightly different, somewhere, somewhere, somehow, a baby is being sacrificed. Yeah, or like the only thing that comes to mind. <laughs> right? Like, the first thing, like, ah, oh, you eat babies? And you're like, no, I just don't dig your religion? What? How? But isn't that like, oh. isn't that where baby back ribs come from? No, but yes, no. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 all orgies, all right. baby sacrifice, and like blood drinking. <laughs> yes, that's what the cookout's for, right? And cookout. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you have to use oh all of the pieces of the um, Anyways, then we come to these inconsistencies. While frequently reported on, the, the murders mentioned were the same, but they really weren't. Opelousa's family murdered in 1909. The axe was the primary weapon, but the family had also been stabbed. Unlike the other families, this one wasn't killed in their sleep. Neighbors heard screaming. The mother had been assaulted prior to her death. All three children were still found alive, though gravely injured, and would eventually succumb to their wounds. Neighbors rushed to help and try to catch the perpetrator, and a black man was seen fleeing the scene, but no one was able to catch him. And for the buyers, the doors were found locked from the inside. The killer had entered and departed through a window. Bloody footprints were found in the house and a wash basin, basin of bloody water, where a suspected killer washed their hands. It appears that they tried to wash the floor as well. Meanwhile, with the Andrews, there is more than is generally reported. After the Andrews were killed, the killers subjected them to indignities. It doesn't specify what that is. I assume sexual assault is my base assumption based on that. The killer had then... Abuse of a corpse? Yeah, or something. 
The killer then remained in the home for some time, rearranging screens and even lighting a lamp. The husband and wife were moved into a kneeling position on the floor as if praying. It's also noted that... Mm. Yeah. (laughs) also noted that prior to the murder, Raymond Barnabet had some trouble with the Andrew family and had threatened revenge against them. Randall's murder also had a different had a difference. Norbert the father had been shot in the head before being attacked with the axe. Also noted that the Randalls were killed with the blunt end of the axe, while the Andrews were killed with the sharp end. Clementine claimed that she had shot the father with a gun that she had borrowed from her brother, but the shot but she shot him after he was already dead, when several reports make it clear the police believe the shot occurred prior to his murder. Of course it's like then there's Raymond. So it was Raymond's wife that had told a, a friend about her suspicions of her husband's involvement in the murder, who then advised the police. And when the case was brought to trial, Raymond's wife, daughter, and son testified against them. But Raymond's family weren't the only testimony. The Stevens family, who were neighbors to the Barnabets, also testified. It's noted that these Stevens had a very good reputation as, quote, representatives of the best of their race who were clean, modest, direct, and uncontradictory. Yeah. <laughs> them them black folks were real good when they didn't step out of line. Right. <gasps> and then Zephyr and Clementine, on the other hand, were considered considered to have very bad reputations and were quote healthy, shifty, degenerate examples of the lowest African type. There's no highest here at all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So Sheriff Lacoste seemed to think even at this time that Clementine and Zephyr knew more about the murders than they were letting on. While the Stevens family did testify against Raymond, I have been unable to find any records of what that testimony entailed. But one report said that their testimony had had many contradictions with Clementine's. While it's commonly reported that Raymond's lawyer put in the plea for retrial as his client had been drunk during the trial, there are also two more reasons that a retrial was requested. First was the jury failed to follow the judge's instructions in deliberation. And then the second was the prosecution failed to establish motive or acquire consistent evidence. So likely Raymond wasn't responsible for any of the murders. At least based on the evidence that we have. I also like that the court system did push back on that and was like, there wasn't enough evidence or motive. But like... It still brings up questions about Clementine's because it really doesn't feel like there was enough evidence or motive in that situation either. Mm-mm. Then we go to Clementine's physical capability. So some reports say that she was sturdy and others says otherwise. So, quote, Clementine Barnabet is a frail young mulatto girl who confessed that she had killed 17 of 35 human beings who had been sacrificed in Louisiana in the worship of the sacred serpent. Um, then another paper says, Clementine is strong and robust and does not appear demented in spite of the story that she tells. And then another is, modern criminal history hardly has a parallel to the confessions of Clementine Barnabet of Lafayette, a failed half-blood black woman of 22 years who admitted that she had, with her own hands, killed 17 persons. So we've got a bunch of different descriptions about her. Either she's frail or she's strong and robust. <laughs> And of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just, it just all feels and, icky. And of course, there's the light punishments. It's telling that her father was sentenced to death without any evidence but the testimony of his children. Yet in Clementine's case, they allegedly had clothes covered in the blood of the Randall family and the alleged blood on the front gate. But they just gave her life. 
This could just be because Clementine's female and historically women get lesser sentences in violent crimes. But she was also released after only serving 10 years. You know, some argue that if they truly thought that she was guilty, they wouldn't have let her out. But it could also be argued that her, quote, operation had made her so docile that the prisons thought that the general public had nothing to fear. After Clementine's release, we know nothing about her. She disappears. Serial killers don't stop of their own volition. They have many stretches where they may have stretches where they don't commit any murders. But prevailing pattern is that they always return to killing eventually. If she'd actually committed the murders and actually believed in the cult of sacrifice and everything she allegedly said that she did, it would seem incredibly unlikely that she would just drop off the radar and never be heard from again. She would have had... Unless whatever surgery they did to her... Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. Unless whatever surgery they did to her caused, like, you know, it was like, it was a lobotomy. Yeah, exactly. Like a proto-lobotomy. In which case, like, maybe she just died quietly somewhere. Yeah, she may have died young, or she got really good at hiding her tracks. Or like you said, yeah, she just, you know, meandered on. Oh, she got murdered. So. There are so many inconsistencies, so little evidence, and a heavy cloud of dubiousness over the reporting on this case. It's hard to say what's true or what's not, but if Clementine isn't guilty, then who killed all these people? Likely not the dad or the brother. The buyer's murder had also been attributed to the man from the train. The other murders don't match that profile, as the man's motives seemed to be sexual in nature, and he was very organized. He also used the dull side of the axe to kill his victims. The Barnabas murders used the blade or the butt. The Opelousa's family were also attacked with a knife alongside the axe, and Norbert Rander was shot. There's thought that many of these and other axe murders at the time were copycats, inspired by the men from the train, or other murders, the same way that we see more shootings occur after there has been one. The idea gets in people's heads, and if you're already thinking of murder, why not use an axe? Most families had one, and it's an effective weapon. From what little was reported about these murders, there are notable differences, so each one could possibly have been a different perpetrator, but... We'll probably never know. So, while the stories seem to have got lost for the last century, reporting on it dropping off the bearish dribble after 1913, eventually the internet discovered the story, attracting great interest and inspiring all new legends and stories, many happy to fill in the gaps with their own conjecture and ideas, but one of these claimed to know what happened to Clementine. In 2002, a user going by, Voodoo Gal 11 told the tale of visiting her great-grandmother in 1985. Her grandmother was celebrating her 103rd birthday and would go on to tell her granddaughter about a maddened killer that went on a rampage in 1911 in Louisiana. She was, quote, a black woman so beautiful with alabaster skin and eyes so piercing she would look at you and turn you to stone. Her gaze was so wanton and enticing that no man could refuse her. Boudrigal asked her grandmother if any of this was true, but her grandmother just sipped her iced tea and said nothing else on the topic. Later that year, Boudrigal's great-grandmother dies and she would visit her home with her grandmother. Going through her things, she comes across a picture of her great-grandmother when she was in her early 20s. And she says, quote, She had alabaster skin, long curly black hair, and very light eyes, and then I started trembling. This story is cited across numerous articles that I read about Clementine, but none of them provide the actual source of the story. I don't know what website this occurred on, and any attempts to find it has come up empty. So who's to even say if this story was even told? Never mind if there's any truth to it. I like to imagine that Clementine went on to live a good piece of life at the end of this, because I don't think she was responsible for this. Mm-mm. That's Clementine Barnabet. <laughs> yeah, I had That's this wild. in my uh, notes as a single line of, like, black serial killer. <laughs> That's all I had. I was like, okay, I'll look into this. Maybe <laughs> this will be kind of a short one. No, no, it's not. <laughs> 
And then it unrolled it into yeah. fucking everything. Never is. It never is. Yeah, and then it's just like you'll see this be brought up all the time and like you know, biggest female stealer killer lists and shit like that. Just like there's so much. Yeah, the internet seems to be sold on the narrative that she was this crazy killer that killed all these people and there's just not enough evidence to prove that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my story. <laughs> Courtney. That's it for this week. Next week, we're back and Courtney is going to tell you all about the yacht killing orcas and Nathan is going to talk about dicks. A lot about dicks. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. Keep up with all things exceptional. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at thehumanexception. Have a story you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or you just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And to get out of the fun, come join us on our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Mm-hmm.